So welcome to the Talking, Learning and Teaching podcast. We have an exceptionally special guest for you today on the show. We have Katie Novak. Now, Katie is an internationally renowned education consultant, author, graduate instructor and former assistant superintendent of schools in Massachusetts with 19 years of experience in teaching and administration and an earned doctorate in curriculum and teaching. Katie is the author of the best-selling books UDL Now, A Teacher's Guide to Applying Universal Design for Learning in Today's Classrooms, Innovate Inside the Box, Equity by Design, and UDL and Blended Learning. So Katie, I mean, I can't really top an introduction like that. How are you? I am doing so well. Thank you so much for having me. No, thank you for coming on. Um, we spoke, didn't we, before I started recording about the kind of Wayne's World moment where they kind of, you know, we're not we're not worthy. And I was doing a little <laughs> bit of that, wasn't I? So um, <laughs> I'll try and maintain my composure today. OK, I mean, I mean, we're doing great here. We're like already besties. We're ready to go. Fantastic. Well, that's a great start then, isn't it? So obviously I've, I've invited you on the show, Katie, to talk to us about UDL because um, that's obviously one of the things that you are most renowned for. So I guess a good starting point would be, tell us about your UDL journey. I mean, where did your interest in UDL begin? So my interest was completely accidental in that I was a seventh grade teacher. So I taught English and language arts to 12 and 13 year olds. And I was in a school that was really looking to move away from exclusionary segregated models. So previous to this pilot program that I was a part of, there was a, you know, a special room for students for behavior. There was another room that was a therapeutic learning center. There was a room that was a life skills setting. And we had all of these segregated programs instead of actually having really great inclusive programming. And so there was a pilot and they were looking for general education classroom teachers who were willing to have a really inclusive classroom from students who had not previously been served in a general education setting with their peers. And I volunteered for that. And as a result, ended up in getting trained in universal design for learning by CAST, which is the organization that actually created the framework. So I was so incredibly lucky to be trained by Dr. David Rose in Universal Design for Learning, but it was as a classroom teacher in trying to think about how do I design instruction that's going to work really well for this hugely beautiful range of student learners. And as I learned more about the framework, I recognized that I would spend so much time reacting to like really exclusionary practices that I was using and there was a better way. And, you know, how did I take this pivot into consulting? Again, that was totally by accident because I was a part of essentially a research study of how do you effectively implement UDL? There were people from CAST who came out to observe our classroom all of the time. And we would have to do these interviews. And in one interview, they were asking me, like, what is the most important part of your training? What tools are so great? And I was like, ah, to be honest, the most important thing is like my own mindset. And that sounds a little salty, but I meant it in that none of the tools in the world are going to make a difference if you do not realize just our own bias about what we think classrooms should look like. And I was just saying that like the biggest barrier for me was myself. And once I understood that, that 
everything that I wanted to be like my way was not the way. It was just a way. And there were so many other pathways. So David Rose heard that interview and thought that it was amusing and invited me to come to Harvard University to present at this international conference. So I had never presented in front of adults. And he's like, you know, why don't you come out and talk about your experiences? And I was like, I will. And so I gave this presentation just talking about mindset and bias and UDL. And people started coming up to me saying, do you do this in other schools? And I'm like, yes, I no, I had no idea what I was doing. So it all started there with just beautiful happenstance and like, you know, mouthing off as I normally do. <laughs> Well, you know, sometimes that's the best approach, isn't it? Just to mouth off and, until somebody listens. But something that really something that really resonated there is you talked about the kind of work and sort of reflection that you needed to do with yourself as being the most important tool. So it, it segues quite nicely into the next question, actually. I mean, does UDL reinvent the role of the teacher? And if it does, how does it do that? I think it absolutely does. But I think that the original role of the teacher is like so archaic to begin with that, you know, it was not just universal design that transitioned. I remember, you know, I ended up getting my teaching degree over 20 years ago. And even 20 years ago, they were saying, move away from sage on the stage to guide on the side. And for a long time, I mean, we want to go back centuries before any sort of printing technology it did make sense to have this great orator who could share all this information because there was no other place to get it. And then as you know, technology has enhanced access to information, it's really created almost this like obsolete role in that anyone can get almost any information from anywhere. So how do we build really deep relationships with people we work with? How do we recognize barriers to design? How do we carve pathways? And then, of course, using formative assessment data to provide feedback and guidance and support. So I think that it's one of many inclusionary practices that is shifting the role of the teacher simply because it is no longer 1825 and there are so many other better ways for people to learn. Again, I think, you know, we often talk about that quote, don't we? The, the you know, the sage on the stage to the guide on the side. I mean, I, I come from a higher education perspective and I would say that for the most part, teachers direct learning in most higher education scenarios. But how important is it from a UDL perspective that the learners direct the learning? I think that it's absolutely paramount. So when I talk about universal design, I usually focus on three really core beliefs, which are number one, we recognize and embrace variability. We are not only different from each other, which is like incredibly obvious, but my needs are always shifting. So we know that learners are essentially a moving target. We're all so dynamic that you can't get to know me really well and then be like, I know what Katie needs tomorrow. Because you don't know what kind of mood Katie's in or how much sleep Katie got or who Katie's working with. And so it's essentially recognizing that not only are we different from each other, but our needs are changing. Now, once we embrace variability, we start to say, what really are our firm goals? What is it that all of these learners have to know and do? And that expert learning piece, which is the third piece, is essentially how do we honor our learners and allow them to make choices about based on where they are right now, right at this moment, 
what do learners need to be successful? And so an expert learner is somebody who is just really self-aware and is able to cope and regulate and make responsible decisions. And so often teachers feel as though I know what's best for my learners as if learners are static. And so this expert learning piece, if we want to explode that, is all about if you want to call it future ready, if you want to call it college and career ready, 21st century ready, who cares what we call it, is that the humanness of learning is in being reflective, is in thinking critically, is in making decisions. And a compliance-based class where I sit there like a glazed donut and just like take in information from somebody, that is not in any way, shape, or form going to prepare me for any future that I'm going to create myself. So one thing you mentioned there was the the idea about becoming an expert learner. And, and I wanted to ask you about metacognition and how important that might be in UDL. So, I mean, part of becoming an expert learner is about knowing how you learn most effectively in, in given scenarios, as you've already mentioned there. I mean, do we do enough as teachers to encourage that? So encouraging learners how to learn in their own unique way that's most effective for them? The answer is largely no, I think, in that in most of the in most scenarios the instructor holds significantly more power than learners and that this is how you are going to learn this is what you are going to learn this is how you're going to share what you know and as an instructor i get to decide what is appropriate and what is not appropriate and so in some cases the pathways are just not even available but even when they're available, we run into, well, those are only accommodations for people who are working with disability services. I can't provide that to everyone. And that just blows my mind in its ridiculousness and lack of humanity in that one of the analogies that I use, which is so incredibly simple, is if we were to go to a cafe, you know, a coffee shop, a tea house, Every cafe owner knows that you don't only serve cream because there are some people who are lactose intolerant. There are some people who are vegan. There are some people who do not like cream. So when you go to a coffee shop and you say, can I order a coffee? They're not just going to give you a coffee with cream in it, right? So they're going to say, you know, would you like a tea or a coffee, decaf or regular? Would you like some half and half, some milk? And then you start going to the soy milks, the almond milks, the oat milks. If coffee shops were like classrooms, you would have to show your lactose intolerant card to get the soy milk, right? It's like, no, that's not for everyone. That's only for the people who have. And it's like, oh, my goodness, this whole madness about we're really preparing our students for life is absolutely false. The only thing we're preparing them for is this very narrow class that one person had the power to build. Because in real life, I can use any scaffold available to me to kind of chart my own course. So, I mean, I've heard you talk previously about options and choices when it comes to learning and teaching. I mean, does that link to what you just said there? Right. And it's it's not so much options and choices because we believe in preference is because we recognize exclusion. So I'm not providing a bunch of options and choices just for the sake of options and choices. It's 
if I do not provide those options and choices, there are some people who are going to be excluded from that learning environment. And, you know, I've been recently going down this rabbit hole of learning more about something called the paradox of choice. So there's this brilliant, brilliant professor. His name is Barry Schwartz. And he wrote a book called The Paradox of Choice. And that we know as human beings that choice is necessary for freedom. That if everyone always told us what to do and we didn't have an opportunity to self-reflect and to make choices, then we simply don't have agency. We are not free. And so there's this like fallacy that if some choice is good, more choice is better. And he does this brilliant TED talk where he talks about like modern progress has made it so you can go to the grocery store and there are 175 salad dressings. You're welcome. And it's like, oh my word, no one needs 175 salad dressings, like period, end of story. So if I wanted to be like really inclusive in my dinner party, I have to think of variability of my guests. You know, I know people have very different dietary needs and preferences, and there's a lot that I can predict. And I know that if I pre-dress a salad with, let's say, a ranch dressing, then anyone who does not like ranch or anyone who cannot consume dairy is absolutely excluded. So what do I do? I recognize the barrier. I put the ranch on the side. Maybe I did a little oil and vinegar and bada bing. Like now we have a more accessible dinner because my goal is I want you to enjoy this salad bar. And so by having like two or three choices, I've actually done a very thoughtful job of eliminating that barrier. And now more people can be included. And so he has basically found that within this paradox of choice, optimal results happen when you're given between two and four options in order to meet a goal. But one of those pathways has to have eliminated a barrier for you. So this is like really thoughtful design work on behalf of an instructor, because if you're putting out 175 salad dressings, you're not doing much thought to like what actually is the barrier here and how do I exclude that or how do I minimize that? And so when we think about options and choices, we think about, I want everyone to be included. I want everyone to have opportunities to work towards the same goal. I want everyone to be able to make a choice, to feel like they have agency to make a choice. But in doing that, I need to make sure that everybody feels like they belong, despite the fact that I'm limited to a certain number of choices, which means I really need to get to know my learners well and help them to help me co-create those pathways. I mean, that's really interesting what you said there, because it kind of made me reflect on my my nightly challenge with Netflix and the sort of 300 different movies that I can choose from and I never end up choosing any of them because I'm just mm-hmm. spoiled for choice effectively yeah. um, but I mean it, that was a really interesting analogy as well about the um, the dinner party I always use that one with my um, trainee teachers about you know how would you plan for a dinner party for people that you don't know thinking about variability so it was good that you um, you referenced that one um, I, I want to turn uh, our attention a little bit to to engagement and uh, engagement is a huge buzzword currently in UK higher education but it's it's a frustrating one because there's no real agreement as to what it actually means or, or how it's actually defined if that makes sense um, from a UDL perspective what do we mean by engagement so the 
UDL principle to provide multiple means of engagement has three guidelines, and that's a really helpful way to think about engagement. So first, let's talk about what engagement is not, which is some sort of fun or participation meter, where it's like, ooh, wow, they're engaged. Look how much fun they're having. Like, the purpose of education is not for people to have fun. It's to make learning worthwhile to commit to. And so the three UDL guidelines when you're looking at engagement is recruiting interest, sustaining effort, and being able to self-regulate. So I really like that and how it relates to Philip Schlechty's model of engagement, where he talks about that engagement is really equal parts attention and commitment. So when you're unpacking attention, it means that you've made a compelling enough argument to have me focus, but that doesn't mean that I'm having fun. So one of the examples that I often use is, let's say that I'm going to have a medical procedure and I'm going to some sort of pre-op appointment with a doctor. I would 100% be paying attention, but I would not be having fun. So it's all about like, what is the goal? Why is this goal worthwhile? Now the next is, I think really interesting, it's that commitment piece. So UDL breaks open commitment into the ability to really challenge yourself and sustain effort, but also how do you regulate those feelings of challenge? So anything really worth sticking with is going to be challenging in some way. It might be a little bit out of your zone of proximal development. It might be incredibly frustrating. We experience confusion and cognitive dissonance, even boredom sometimes. Those are all feelings that you need to somehow navigate. And so first is being able to put yourself in that zone where you truly are challenged. And then how do you deal with those feelings of challenge? Because they're really uncomfortable. So you have to know how to cope with the frustration, to cope with all of the micro failures that take you to a place where you're going to be much more successful in the end. So it's like this constant cycle of being really reflective. Like, where am I at right now? Okay, I can see that I'm getting really frustrated. So what am I going to do about that if I want to continue to put in effort? Maybe I work with someone else. Maybe I take a quick break. Maybe I look at some scaffolds and exemplars. But that's that metacognition that you're talking about is that it is impossible to be engaged if you are not challenged. And it's impossible to cope with challenge if you're not constantly monitoring your progress and thinking about how am I going to navigate this. So what Schlechty does really, really well is he makes a really big distinction between engagement and compliance. And the difference between engagement and compliance is in the level of stick with it. Because if I'm like, this is really cool, I love learning about this, and I never am challenged, I'm just in this model of very strategic compliance. But as soon as it gets really hard, then I'm like, ah, now it's not worth it. Like, this is stupid. This is boring. I'm not going to stick with it. As soon as that happens, there's no more engagement. So the definition in UDL is essentially recruiting interest and then sustaining that interest and helping all learners really cope with challenging themselves as they work towards or beyond a standard or goal. I mean, that's absolutely fascinating because we have another term in UK higher education, which is stretch and challenge, which 
means exactly what it says. Um, but, but sometimes when I talk to fairly sceptical teachers, they sort of say, well, isn't UDL about making things a little bit easier? I mean, the, the, the question I want to ask, Katie, is, I mean, that that challenge aspect that you just described about how it can be uncomfortable and it can be difficult. I mean, does that have a role to play, do you think, in, in supporting uh, the, the development of resilience in our learners? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, success is a journey. And I feel like this is something that's just really internationally cultural and that we're becoming a species that wants success quickly. And everything that we do is like, how do I reverse 40 years of aging in my skin by putting on a lotion once? How do I get in shape by going to the gym one time? Like everything is like, make your meals quickly and get your degree faster and, you know, find love quickly. But anything that's really worth achieving, anything that I am most proud of, it was the extended journey that made it really worthwhile. And that extended journey is peppered with far more failure than it is success. But I always talk about like it's micro failure that when you learn to ride a bike or when you learn to ski or when you learn to walk, you fall down a lot. And it's not like there's this heaviness of carrying with me now that I'm a walker, like, oh, you know, oh, my stars, like I'm so upset every time that I fell down on my bottom when I was like a toddler and toddling around. But that's just the nature of success. And I think that if we're talking about stretch and challenge for too long, instructors, professors have been the ones to challenge learners and then learners have not had to challenge themselves. And so in some ways, I think that if professors are really struggling with, you know, gosh, students aren't challenging themselves. In some way, I see that as pulling back a little bit on that it's my own responsibility to do that. So in some ways, I think it's a pretty positive shift to say, like, we really need our students to learn how to challenge themselves, but also we have to create learning spaces that are conducive to that. So it's really difficult to say, I really want all my learners to take risks and challenge themselves and then not offer revisions on assessments. <laughs> like, those two things don't really, um, you know, they don't really live together of, like, really challenge yourself, try your hardest, and then you end up bombing something because you took this big risk. And it's like, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, you can't you can't make that up. That's just a failing grade. So, like, how do we create a system that truly minimizes the threat of challenging yourself and allows students to cope with and appreciate the fact that, like, you fell down. That's no big deal. Get back up. I mean, a lot of what you said there, Katie, kind of resonated with me because I've always had an interesting kind of um, gamified learning and, and play. And obviously, when we play, it reframes the concept of failure. So we don't fail. We just try again effectively. Um, but I, I guess what I'm what I'm getting towards here in terms of, of questions, I mean, how, how big a part does the sort of involvement of students as partners play in, in effective UDL practice? So sort of working with them to, to sort of reframe that notion of failure and, and to get them stretching and challenging themselves. I mean, because there are challenges, you know, if it's only us as teachers that tries to do that, isn't there? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think two things that are often associated with UDL is like choice and voice. And I think the voice piece, which is like making student metacognition more transparent to educators 
is essentially like, what barriers are you facing and what pathways would be beneficial in order to eliminate those barriers? So again, as instructors, there are a lot of barriers that we absolutely can predict based on human variability, but we can't predict all of them. And um, there's a, a professor named Chris Emden at, at NYU at New York University, and he does a lot of work with something he calls reality pedagogy. And, you know, he's a, a big, big, um, you know, uh, a big, big driver of like, we have to create more equitable learning spaces. And he says that an equitable learning space is one where you hear what someone truly needs, and then you provide them with that. And I really like that definition of voice for how it relates to UDL, which is this is the firm goal and this is not negotiable. This is what you truly need to know. And this is what you truly need to do to be successful in this field of study, to be successful in this space. And so as higher education instructors, you're generally boiling down a class to very few objectives. You know, I know when I design a graduate course, I might say, you know, there are you know, five or six big objectives for this course. This is what you have to know. This is what you have to be able to do. And these are the different pathways for how you can learn and the pathways for how you can share what you know. But I constantly on formative assessment pieces want to be able to ask, like, how do you think you did on this and why? And what would be really, really beneficial to have moving forward? And I love the sentence frame, you know, it would be great if... So, you know, we'll have kind of a, a unit or a lesson. I'll provide lots of different options for learners to, you know, make sense of, of learning. So maybe they have an option to read or listen to some peer-reviewed articles. And then there's a collection of podcasts or videos and they have to choose one. And then it's all about like sharing your understanding. How do you think your understanding is progressing? And what would be really helpful to bring your understanding to the next level? And people will say, it would be really great if, you know, I could see a specific lesson of what this looks like here. Or it would be really great if I had an opportunity to do this again with more time as after I got feedback from my classmates, I realized that I could do a much better job. Or it would be really great if there was a rubric that more clearly articulated what needs to be a part of it. And when I reflect on those things, I'll just always share them back with learners and say, you know, someone shared that this might be really helpful. And so I want to make this available to everyone. And the best professional development that I receive on a daily basis is just being really reflective based on learner feedback. And I know specifically in higher ed, learner feedback is generally saved until the final course evaluation when there's nothing I can do about it. Like those learners have gone. They've, the birdies have flown the coop. So I ask every single week for like really quick exit tickets. I'll add it as the last question on an assessment. Um, I'll add it in the discussion board, which is just what is one thing I could do to make this class more challenging, more accessible, more culturally responsive. And people's ideas are just incredible. I'm glad you mentioned that, actually, because, again, we always sort of really try to instill in our trainee teachers the need to get ongoing feedback because you can obviously modify your approach based on that feedback. There's not just a, a one way of doing it in week one and then it's fixed and you can't change it. So yep. that's a really useful piece of advice. Thanks for that. I mean, you, you might have touched upon the next piece already, Katie, but I mean, myself and many of the listeners will have kind of been trained as teachers uh, in a system that really placed a large emphasis 
on differentiation and differentiated instruction. I mean, what are the key sort of differences between differentiated instruction and UDL? So, you know, as an inclusive practitioner, I use both frameworks in my practice all the time. So I always think about it as universal design is how do I design kind of first best instruction to give every single learner the the best pathway to learn and share what they know. So as I'm thinking about designing a unit of instruction, I want to make sure that everyone can access resources to make sure that there's lots of different examples, that I have exemplars and rubrics. And when learners share their learning on formative assessments, I then am going to use the results of those formative assessments to target instruction and feedback. So again, I, I was an English teacher. I teach writing. And so I might say, we're going to work on narrative technique. So I might provide a mini lesson on kind of narrative pacing and using dialogue and, you know, imagery. And then we read lots of different exemplars and there's options to work together and reflect on video and in writing, like what makes a really effective narrative. So we're going to, you know, be exposed to lots of different exemplars. And then I provide, um, some graphic organizers, potentially some examples, rubrics. And I say, now I want you to craft your narrative. I am going to look at those narratives and I'm going to put them in essentially three piles. Students who absolutely nailed it. Just such beautiful, descriptive narrative detail. Students who did very well and met expectations. And then students who simply didn't get it yet. And what I do next for those three groups of students, which is constantly being regrouped based on the objective, is, is going to be very targeted. So differentiated instruction is how does a teacher target instruction based on data. I'm not going to do something different for students with disabilities because that group is a beautifully diverse group. I'm not going to do something different for English language learners. Again, super variability. But what I will say is based on this objective and based on the formative assessment data, this group did really, really well. And I want to encourage them to like really push themselves to the next level. This group needs a lot of targeted support on like Let's look at more exemplars together. We're going to revise in real time. So differentiated instruction is the flexible grouping and regrouping of students to provide targeted instruction or targeted feedback based on actual data. But that is ultimately still going to be, once I provide that instruction and feedback, I'm going to universally design my next step. So it's having like first best instruction that is accessible, that is inclusive, that is like really well designed. When you have formative assessment data, which should not ever negatively impact a student grade, you know, when you have a formative assessment data, it is as learning. It's as evidence of where students are so that I can better design instruction. So if we think about, well, what does that look like if I never universally designed instruction? I am just going to make groups of students and say, these are my struggling learners. These are my really, you know, highly capable learners. Oh, they must be in that group forever. And then I'm going to actually decide who gets to have what. And so differentiated instruction on its own leads to a lot of oppressive and exclusionary practices. Differentiated instruction, when it's used to supplement universally designed instruction, ensures that learners are getting targeted feedback and resources to push them to the next level based on where they are. 
And I think that using both of those really thoughtfully ensures that when you get to a summative assessment place, everyone has had access to the same resources, really great mastery-oriented feedback, opportunities to connect with peers who might be struggling or excelling in the same area, which ultimately will lead to much better learning for everyone. So a really simplistic way to talk about the differences is that universal design for learning is designing so learners can self-differentiate how they learn, what resources they use, and how they share what they know. Differentiated instruction is an evidence-based practice where teachers create flexible groups of students to provide them with targeted instruction and feedback based on data. That was absolutely fascinating because I think obviously it, it, it sounds like the two approaches really do complement each other well. Um, and as, as, you, as you mentioned there, some of these exclusionary practices that you know many teachers have been encouraged to actually employ for a long time, kind of putting all of the weaker students together, putting all of the strong students together, et cetera, and those types of things. So the way you described it obviously kind of frames it in quite a different perspective. But, you know, when you describe it that way, it, it, it you know, appears far more intuitive. It, it was good that you talked about both formative and summative assessment there, because I'm going to ask you about summative assessment now. Mm -hmm. So whenever I support colleagues with UDL, perhaps the biggest challenge is supporting them with summative assessment. So, for example, many colleagues feel quite nervous about allowing choice in the way that learners are summatively assessed because of the potential lack of equivalence between different assessment types. I mean, how can we overcome that issue? So I, I think it's really the issue of construct relevance is that if you're nervous about the different types, I'm guessing the types are not construct relevant. So let's take like the greatest astrophysicist minds in the universe. When astrophysicists go to conferences and they're going to share their findings of research of what's happening in the galaxies, they have legitimate options to do that. You can write a white paper in which you actually present a paper for your peers to review. You can do an interactive poster session where you have this combination of visuals and narrative, but you're there to answer questions. You could join a panel and have your colleagues just grill you with really difficult questions, and or you could give more of an actual presentation, TED Talk-like, where you present your findings. Anyone in the scientific community would agree that all of those are very authentic ways to share your research. One of the options is not to go to that conference and make a children's book and sit on the ground with like Crayola drawings and share what you know. It's simply not construct relevant. And I think that sometimes when we think about options and choices, we just go so far beyond the scope of what is appropriate in the field that it starts thinking about like, I don't want to skit. Well, of course not. That would not be authentic. That wouldn't be relevant. It wouldn't be purposeful if your job is to communicate findings of legitimate scientific research. And so, you know, when I'm working with instructors, I always say, what really is the goal and what are authentic ways that people in your field would be able to share that? So for writing, if you are writing an academic paper, you are writing an academic paper. Period, end of story. We have refereed journals that are very, very clear about the parameters. And so if you're teaching an academic writing class, there's no video option. There's no podcast option because I am teaching you how to actually write a paper for a refereed journal. So when I'm talking about multiple means of action and expression in that setting, it means 
potentially allowing revisions. It means the option of a peer review. It means allowing students to use like a voice to text. It means having the APA or the Chicago or the MLA journal right next to you to make sure you get it right. And why is because as real writers and researchers, we use all those tools all the time. So I think that it's not so much that providing options for action and expression always means totally different assessments. But within an assessment, what are the options and choices for the tools? What are the options for sharing what you know? You know, we even take like, I work with some career technical education. And it's like, I need to make sure a nurse knows how to properly insert an IV. Yes, please. Yes, like that is very necessary. I don't want someone to explain how to insert an IV. I actually need them to, you know, to insert an IV. So it's like, what would prevent a nursing candidate from being able to do that? And then what options do we need to provide? So I think that it's a much more purposeful discussion of the summative assessment needs to be acceptable evidence of meeting criteria in a field. And sometimes, sadly, we are serving these governing bodies that actually provide really, really exclusionary tests within those fields. And so that is certainly something that many instructors have to grapple with. So in the United States, if you want to become a teacher, you have to pass a, it's called in, in Massachusetts where I am, Boston, Massachusetts, it's called the MTEL, like the Massachusetts Test for Education Licensor. And that is a really exclusionary test. They do not provide a lot of support. And so there's a lot of instructors who are working with pre-service teachers who are like, I can provide you with lots of different flexibility, but ultimately I need to prepare you for this test. So the question is, what is preventing students from doing really, really well on that test? <laughs> that is the universal design frame of like, how do we prevent or minimize the barriers that prevent people from doing really, really well? I mean, I, I totally agree with everything you said there. I mean, sometimes it's useful, isn't it, to think about sort of knowledge and skills. I mean, if it's skills that are being assessed, then you have to assess whatever skill, you know, takes place in that relevant uh, scenario or, you know, whether it's occupationally relevant or whatever. Mm -hmm. if, if it's kind of knowledge, it can often be assessed in, 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 a, in a variety of ways. So it's useful because sometimes I think there's a bit of a myth that, you know, we're telling people to to provide, you know, really really extreme options I mean the one that we always use as a bit of a joke where I am at De Montfort University is you know you've, you've got the choice between an essay or a piece of interpretive dance or something like that and it's you know it, we're not asking people to do that necessarily mm -hmm. you know sometimes it's about unpicking a particular assessment methodology and, and and obviously looking at how flexible it can be made and, and and how much more UDL it can be made can't it and I think obviously we have a I mean most higher education scenarios do but we have a big problem with with exams and, and tests and, and, and making them obviously a lot more accessible than they are. I, I, wa I want to turn our attention now to sort of technology and, and, and education has obviously been undergoing a technological revolution for a number of years. But since the pandemic, it feels like the pace of that revolution has really increased. I mean, how important is technology to effective UDL practice? I think it's important, but I also think that there are absolutely ways to eliminate barriers in ways that are very low tech. However, what I will say is that 
technology allows for like much more efficiency in being able to do that. So let's talk about printed text. If I am a college instructor and there's some peer reviewed article in any field, right? Music theory, science, you know, occupation, but I have a peer reviewed research article. If I print that out, staple it and hand it out, and that's the only way that you can get that information, I'm going to be excluding anyone who doesn't speak or read English if it's written in that language, right? I'm going to exclude anyone who can't decode at grade level, um, who doesn't have the background information of like macro text structure, anyone who's visually impaired, like there's just a lot of exclusion. So what actually is my goal? It's probably that you are able to comprehend and make sense of kind of the methodology of the study, the results of the study and what the implications are for the field. So very, very low tech. I say to learners, you are welcome to work with someone else and one of you can read it out loud. Or I can actually read it out loud. So I could say, I want to give you the option to either go and read this on your own, or I want to give you the option to stay in here with me and we'll chunk the text and I'm happy to read it out loud. And that might be great if you like to annotate text, if you'd prefer to listen, if you have a headache, there's lots of different barriers, but like that's a very low tech way to make printed text more accessible. You can go into kind of like a moderately technological way, which is use like a screen reader. So we post the article in our learning management system, and then students can use whatever robot voice is available to read back the article. Or we have some amazing high-tech solutions where we can record our voices or that we actually have an audio version of that text. And so like along the spectrum, I'm still eliminating that decoding barrier but I can do it all the way across. So I think that people will say, well, I can't universally design because I don't have technology. That is not accurate, but I can do what I do best as an instructor, which is to facilitate and to provide feedback when I am not the one who's always reading out loud and recording my voice and asking students to download the screen readers. So it is absolutely possible, but I think that technology provides a lot of different on-ramps where students can actually do that themselves, like with the right solutions in a learning management system, all you have to do is post the article and then it's translated. It's read aloud in a human voice. The text can be enlarged. There's, you know, stopping points where questions pop up. Like it's amazing what these learning management systems can do. We could still do it as instructors. It's just a little more labor intensive. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the efficiency is obviously there, isn't it, with the technology? But we're coming to the end of our discussion now. So to, to wrap up with, um, for any teacher listening to this that is new to UDL, mm-hmm. what would be your top three tips for getting started with UDL? So what three things could they immediately do to become more UDL in their practice? Okay. So the first thing I would say is really look at what your course objectives are. I think the most important thing is UDL is to really think about what really is it that all learners have to know and do and articulate that. Now, the next is think about that goal in terms of what you're already doing and what is one other way to do it. That's it, right? So if we go back to salad dressing, firm goal, have a lovely dinner at my house. Pathway I was going to take, salad with ranch dressing, recognition of barrier. Some people don't eat ranch. 
I will also put out an oil and vinegar, right? So then I can say to guests, would you rather have your salad plain? Would you rather have ranch dressing or would you rather have a little oil and vinegar? So think about a way that you can do a would you rather. And I'll give you a couple of like really quick and dirty examples. So let's say that you're in a class in person and you say, okay, it's time to turn and talk. Your actual goal is probably not students will practice their oration skills in collaboration. Now, if it is, then I'm going to give you another idea. But you might say, let's pause here in this lecture. Would you rather take two minutes to discuss this or would you rather take two minutes to catch up on your notes? If my goal is actually discussion, right, that's the actual goal of my class, then I might say, would you rather use this protocol to support your discussion or would you feel more comfortable just having an informal discussion? You can choose which group you want to be in, right? So there's always an opportunity for would you rather. So think about what are your goals? Think about what is the pathway that you're going to take and who would be excluded in that pathway and start going through that process of saying, like, what is one other potential pathway for learners to do that? And then my last piece of advice is to simply use that sentence stem. It would be great if or you can insert it would be beneficial if or it would be fabulous if whatever word you love. But asking your learners, whether they're very, very young or adult learners, at the end of a lesson to say, what worked really well and what is one thing that could have been done to make this experience better for you? And I have gotten such, such great ideas. And sometimes they're so small. Like, it would have been great if you gave me your slide deck so I could have followed along on my own computer because it was hard to see your screen. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can fix that in an instant. So I think that just sometimes we have our own bias and we just don't think of the user experience for people who are different than us. Katie, we've run out of time. That's been an absolute education and we're still not worthy. Uh, Thank you so (laughs) much for being a guest on the show today. Um, it would be great to get you back at some point in the future, if you if you would. Would that be something that's... Yeah, definitely. Yeah, fantastic. Katie, I just want to say thanks ever so much once again and uh, have an enjoyable rest of the morning. Is it still morning there? It's 11.13. We're coming up on lunch soon. On lunch. And you're going to have some ranch dressing or you're going to have oil and vinegar? You know, I'm more of a Caesar salad type of gal. Oh, well. <laughs> Whatever it is that you do, enjoy it. Thanks, Katie. Thank you so much.